0: You are listening to As A Woman, episode 88, The Failed IVF Cycle. In this episode, I'm talking about what it's like as a fertility doctor when IVF fails and how we approach what to do next. Welcome to As A Woman, the podcast hosted by fertility physician, Dr. Natalie Crawford, to educate and empower women. Each week, learn about your health, your fertility, and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community fostering collaboration over competition while learning how to authentically find your voice and amplify others as a woman. Hey, friends, welcome back. Today I am talking all about one thing I really hate, which is when IVF cycles fail. Sometimes it is a really surprising result, and sometimes it's what was the expected outcome. Either way, it's always hard. And I find many patients are just not prepared for this moment. That is probably partly because we, fertility doctors, do not prepare them, but also because there's this thought process. And I've seen this after doing this job for years and years and years that IVF is just going to work because it's expensive and really fancy and high tech. And if you're going to do it, a lot of people just blindly walk into the process feeling like they know it is just going to work. And I love hope and optimism, so please do not sit here and think I'm trying to take that away. But I really think the root of this is that people can handle things if they know it is a potential outcome. It is always the unexpected that strikes us a little bit harder. And that is one of the most important things to think about IVF. IVF is in vitro fertilization. That is where we take the eggs out of the body, fertilize them with sperm in the lab, and make embryos. And it's fascinating. You guys, it's still such a new field. And I often am just flabbergasted by this act that we can create an embryo inside a lab and overcome factors that previously would have made it impossible to have children. It's a miracle. It's a beautiful technology, and it is specific and changing. Research is always on end. The technology often advances before the research. And so that is a very interesting place to be as a field. Unlike other aspects of medicine that have years and years of research and data behind every single thing they do, and they have a bajillion really beautiful randomized controlled trials, that's not our field. We're a baby field, and that means that we're new and things are constantly changing. And that's great. That means that there's an emphasis on getting better and having higher success rates, so that benefits everybody. But there's also an industry behind fertility, and I think it's important to realize that this makes being a doctor in this space very interesting. Not bad, just interesting. Meaning, I have to interpret the studies that are out there. That's called evidence-based medicine. That's the core of how we decide what to do. Then we have to interpret all the things that make this patient different than the ones in the study. And that's very common. And then there's a whole bulk of things that have not been appropriately studied, but are available. More is not always more, but sometimes really good technology or options come into the field and it doesn't mean they're bad just because time hasn't passed not to study them yet. And I'm saying all of this because I think this is one of the number one frustrations for patients is that we all practice medicine differently, practice to practice, what you're exposed to, how you interpret literature, and how you deal with new technology. I know some docs who, hey, newer is better, and they bring everything into their practice, no matter if it costs more or takes longer or what the risks are. And I know others who are so late to adapting it that it's embarrassing. So if you go on to Instagram groups or communities or Facebook groups, you are going to see, well, my doctor did this or this worked for me or have they mentioned or what about this. So that as a patient, as a person who has invested your resources, your time, your money, your physical well-being and your emotional reserves to go through a process and then feel like your doctor was hiding something from you or not giving you the best treatment possible, that feels really crappy. And I am acknowledging that. And so I try really hard personally to explain all of these options to patients, even to say, here are all the different things we could do at this time. This, that, X, Y, Z. And here's why I think you're a good candidate or why I think you're not or why it shouldn't be indicated, but talking them through. So it's not just, oh, she doesn't need an ERA, so I'm not gonna bring it up. I believe in practicing medicine by educating. Most of you guys know that about me by now. So my approach is to say, I know you are smart and savvy and you're gonna find information and education. And I encourage that. But that means that on my end, I must be prepared to discuss these options with you, go through pros and cons of each one, and come up with a plan that we both feel good. And my job is to interpret that evidence or lack thereof when we're talking about these. This is the bad thing about this option, but this is the good thing. This may cost you more money and may not help, but it may help. So I'm going to walk you through my approach in this video, but I'm going to pause and say, We all practice medicine different. If your doctor does not approach things this way, it does not mean you have a bad doctor. However, it may not be the right relationship for you, or it may be that you are not communicating well with your care team. I do have a video, so I've been hanging out on YouTube, which is an entirely new world of ring lights and video editing and all kinds of things, but my most recent video was Five Must Know Things Before starting IVF. So if you're listening to this before you start IVF or before you do another cycle, go and listen or watch that video because I do break a few things down that may put it in a different perspective. Okay, so the number one thing to start with is that you need to know what is success. So we're sitting over here talking about a failed IVF cycle. That sounds obvious what that definition is. But those of you who know, know that it's not that easy. So, think about everything that has to happen in the majority of IVF cycles nowadays. Most of my patients who go through IVF, not all of them, most of them are doing genetic testing, which means we stimulate the eggs, get them out of the body, fertilize them, make embryos, embryos grow out, get biopsied, send off for genetic results. And then when we get a normal one, we do a frozen embryo transfer. And to be fair, Defining success or failure is actually very tough in studies in our field too, because there's so many outcomes. The creme de la creme outcome is live birth, holding a baby in your arms. Well, some of the things that contribute to live birth happen significantly after your IVF cycle. There's also just positive pregnancy tests or clinical pregnancy, not just the positive test, but seeing a baby on ultrasound. Then there is having normal embryos, having embryos that grow out even to be biopsied, having eggs that can be fertilized, responding to stimulation. So I just walked you backwards through a bunch of different thought processes, and you could have success or failure at any one of these. So what a complicated field that we live in. So what are we considering a successful cycle anyway? I try to set really clear expectations. So based on your data, I'm expecting, I'm going to make up numbers. I will tell a patient, I'm expecting a, a range of eggs, somewhere from 16 to 20, based on what I'm seeing. If we get 16 eggs and we see normal fertilization rates in our lab, our lab is a good question there, then we'd have 75% of them fertilized. Okay, so now we have 12. If we saw normal progression through culture which would be 50%, now we'd have six. So success for us would be getting somewhere close to six embryos to biopsy. Now, based on your age, which you should know what you're expecting. Even if you're not doing genetic testing, you should know that not every embryo is going to be normal. If you're under age 35, we expect most of them to be normal, usually about 70% if you're over age 40, we expect most of them to be abnormal, only 30% normal. And then over the age of 35, we start to see this change. So at age 35, you're going to see it be about 50%. As you get higher, it's going to increase the chance of abnormal embryos. And then not every normal embryo will have success in frozen embryo transfers. It'll be much higher than without genetic testing, that's for sure. But again, what is success? You can see positive pregnancy test rates, if that's what somebody's quoting you, usually around 70%. And then you have miscarriage chance of the live birth rates a little bit lower. If somebody's acting like their chance of you taking home a baby from one cycle is gonna be 90% or more, those numbers don't exist in our field. You need to ask really good questions to understand what they're talking about. I wish those numbers existed. And now, a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. And now a word for one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential, and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual multivitamin every day because it is easy to take, and I know that I am getting high-quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. One of the hardest things in our field is that not everybody's going to get success, at least not on the timeline they want or the number of cycles they want or doing the treatment they planned on doing. Now, let's not act like 60 to 70%. That's what I quote for the live birth, the take-home baby rate. That's a good number. That's a really good number. If you do not do genetic testing, then the live birth rate per cycle you do is significantly lower and changes per age. Usually the peak that you're going to get at any program is going to be 50% for very young patients. And then it's going to go and drop to, if you're over 40, be usually 10% or less. And so that is without genetic testing, we can normalize those rates and make the most probable outcome that you do get pregnant with your transfer by doing genetic testing. That's a huge reason why I'm a fan of it. I don't always do genetic testing. Genetic testing is where a biopsy is taken of the embryo and the cells are sent off to look at the karyotype, looking at the type of chromosome and the number of chromosomes that the embryo has from this placenta or trophectoderm biopsy. It's not perfect. I'm going to do a whole episode coming up on mosaic embryos, which is this fascinating concept because your results can come back normal or abnormal, or every cell may be different, or they may have two different cell lines because they test each cell independently from where they biopsy. And mosaics are something that we don't have tons of research on. We're getting a lot more and we're starting to process them a lot differently. But that's also important to know you could have normal, abnormal, And gray, right? The world's not black and white. There's shades of gray. Same thing happens in the IVF lab. But people will tell younger women that, oh, you don't need genetic testing because the cost effectiveness analyses are telling us that your chance of getting pregnant is the same whether you don't do genetic testing and do two transfers versus if you do it. So there's no need to do it. I think you don't have to do it, but it's a choice. And you may choose to do it because that may help you get closer to your goals, especially if you want multiple children or if you're low on some of the other resources. Money is not our only resource. Time is our most valuable, but emotionally and physically are the ones that you'll run out of first. So you will at some point tell me, I've gone through so many losses or i have had so many years of not having success that I can't go through with another cycle. Even if I'm sitting over here telling you, but you, the math is in your favor and you should do it. And I believe we can make changes. So that's really important to keep perspective of just because you may not need something. You still should ask questions about it and your doctor should be asking about your goals. I truly believe for most people, IVF and building your family is often not about just baby number one. We often want to have our whole family. And that may or may not be possible. And you need to be honest with your doctor. So I do have patients who have unrealistic goals with their reality. And that's the truth. And I'll say, hey, well, based on your age and your AMH and your prior cycles, I don't think we're going to achieve that goal this way. And maybe we should then explore other options like donor egg or gestational carrier based on your situation. Or we change our goals or expectations to shoot for one child, or that we're going to need multiple cycles to get there. So it's not that anything is off the table, but you may need to make different decisions at a different time period. But I ran through that whole genetics example because often for my patients, I set metrics. So number one is we're got to get normal embryos, and this is what we're expecting. So success for us is getting in this number. I like to have, you know, the what the fuck, the WTF meeting after failed cycles. I like to have a meeting after all my cycles, but that's me. That's my style as a doctor. I'm not saying that that has to happen, but it allows me to say, here's our goal for the IVF cycle. Once we know what our embryos are, how you tolerated the cycle, how you feel, we can then evaluate what happens next. And some doctors don't do that. They say, okay, well, if you get an embryo, we're just going to go on with transfer. And I'm not denying that that approach works. But what I found is that we often feel guilty for thinking about the bigger goal when we're having a hard time achieving the one we want to happen right now. And so the focus becomes baby one, baby one, baby one, baby one. And then if you go through a cycle and you have two embryos and you want two kids, odds are both embryos don't become live born babies. So you have the most eggs and the best quality eggs you're ever going to have right now. And so does it make sense to go do another cycle and take what we learned in order to have a higher chance of achieving the family you want? Because if I go and get you pregnant right now, Odds are you will get pregnant with one of those two embryos. Yay, that's great. But what happens when you come back to me in two or three years if you want more kids and we have no embryos? Then we are starting from scratch at a place where we know it will be harder because time has passed to get the same outcome. And most people think IVF sucks and is really terrible. And I'm not acting like it's easy by any means. But once you've gone through it, it's easier to approach another cycle. And from a doctor's standpoint, we can almost always do better in a subsequent cycle, especially a subsequent immediate cycle, because we can look at this snapshot. It's like Monday morning quarterbacking. Now I have now I know what I could have done different to get a different outcome. Now I have more data on you. And previous to that, when you've done zero cycles, I'm taking all of that evidence and research and trying to apply it to you and get the most likely thing to happen. However, once you've gone through the process, I now know more about you and I can make decisions that are smarter for you and that very, very often results in a better cycle. So I like to have these follow-up visits because I like to check in with my patients and say, hey, we got X, this is what we are expecting, this is your previously stated goal, is that still the same? And I, and this is probably just feeding my own neuroses to know that I'm looking at everything and analyzing every data point because I'm so nerdy and I love data. Y'all know it. But I look through everything. I say, okay, well, with this protocol, right? Because that's step number one. Did the protocol achieve the number of eggs we were expecting? This is how many eggs we'd seen on antral follicle count. This is your AMH. This was your expectation. This is how many eggs were growing. This is how many were in the mature range. This is how many were at mature level at egg retrieval. Okay, so that data is telling me if the protocol was right or not. And this is one of the things that drives me bonkers from other fertility doctors is they don't even look at it. They just say, okay, you're gonna do another cycle. Pay me the more money and let's just do the same cycle because that's the cycle type that I like to run the most versus is that the cycle type that's best for your body? And so the number one thing I see When I do second opinion consults for failed cycles or multiple failed cycles are people doing cycle types that are inappropriate for their circumstance. And maybe you didn't know it at the beginning. Maybe you did. But when you had the data that it wasn't the right thing and then you kept doing the same thing over and over, that's the definition of insanity, right? If it's not going to work, is doing the same thing over and over going to? Now, here's the thing, guys, if you just put working as getting a normal embryo, well, I didn't get a normal embryo from that protocol, so it must not be right for me. Not necessarily. The goal of the protocol is to get mature eggs, get good quality mature eggs. So if you had a really good quality mature eggs in line with your expectations based on your AMH and your antral count, but you didn't have any normal embryos because you were older. That may have been the expected outcome. Protocol still may have done its job. I may do that protocol again because that fell in line. Alternatively, if the protocol underperformed the maturity level, what can I change in the protocol versus do you need another protocol? just to be clear, protocol is the combination of medications for suppression and stimulation in an IVF cycle. The stimulation meds are largely the same There's FSH, follicle-stimulating hormone that stimulates the follicles to grow that is used in a variety of doses based on how many eggs you have. There's Menopur, which is a combination of LH and FSH, which is needed to support hormone production from the ovaries. And there's a bunch of suppressions. There's birth control pills, Lupron, antagonists. There's estrogen, testosterone, all kinds of options we can use to try to trick your body into getting that highest yield of mature eggs. Because remember, your body does not want to have 20 eggs growing. It doesn't want to have 20 babies at once. So the art, a good fertility doctor loves the art of IVF, which is not sucking eggs or putting embryos inside. I mean, those things are fun. But it is evaluating somebody and picking the protocol that's right for all the data points that you have. So, do we need to change the suppression? Do we need different dose of the stimulation medication? What kind of trigger did you use? The triggers are HCG, that's the classic option, or there's also Lupron, which should be used for high responders. Some poor responders don't respond to a Lupron trigger. Then there's also the time. What was the interval between the trigger and the retrieval? That's a very fine window, but if you went longer, would more eggs be mature or would they not be? If you wait too long, you'll ovulate through. So there's a very fine balance. And then there's adjuncts like human growth hormone. So the use of growth hormone is not FDA approved, but it has been looked at in multiple studies and does appear for some select women to increase the number of mature eggs or embryos that make it through or the ones that are genetically normal. So it is improving some of those metrics of success, at least in poor responders older women, women who have fewer eggs, women who have lower AMHs, women who have not had a good response to a cycle in the past. To nerd out, growth hormone in the body is released from the pituitary gland in pulsatile fashion. It changes based on how old you are, your sex, sleep, diet, exercise, stress, all of those things. What it does is it works by increasing something called IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor number one. And IGF-1 is present in the ovaries, around the eggs, and it is important to stimulate factors that are essential in how eggs make receptors for FSH. And the more receptors you have, the better you're going to respond to the medication. And it looks like eggs are less likely to die. Okay, there's a long-winded explanation for why growth hormone is good. Well, guys, it's going to cost more money. So I can tell you as a doctor, when people are nitpicking how much this costs, I get, I get it. I get it. It costs a lot. But It's amazing we're making an embryo in a lab and we're growing your eggs in the body. I mean, just think about when IVF first started that we would follow ovulation of one follicle and go in and do an abdominal surgery and aspirate the follicle before it would ovulate and try to capture the egg that way. We didn't have these stimulation meds, so they cost a lot. It sucks to give you shots, but we really, I promise you, we're trying to do what's best for you and we want to save you money. If, if this country just covered IVF and drugs for every patient, we would feel a lot more comfortable to run protocols and do things that were in the interest of the patient, regardless of how much it costs. That's not the reality of how we practice medicine in the States and fertility. So I clearly explain to patients, hey, I think we need to use this. It is going to cost you more money, but in the context of everything, I think it is worth it. Or based on the data, you probably don't need this. I'm not going to include it in your protocol. Data hasn't shown that it makes a difference for the high responder or the young patient. That being said, I will use it for those women if we just haven't gotten the outcome we want in a prior cycle. So I'm trying to take the data that exists and apply it and not make you spend a bajillion dollars because money is a real limiting resource. And I understand that, but I also want to have the highest chance of getting you where you need to go. And then there's other minimally stimulation approaches that may save you money on the other end, like using Clomid in a cycle. If you're not going to recruit tons of eggs, there may be a way to get there with less doses of medications. So those are the metrics when I look through, did the protocol work? What was the protocol, the combination of suppression stimulation? What was the dose of medication? What medications were used? What was the timing of the trigger and the retrieval? And can any of those things be changed and expect a different outcome? That's metric number one. Then you look at everything that happens in the lab. A lot of the things that happen in the lab are egg quality. So let's say that you're young, you go through, you get the number of eggs that's expected, but your drop off from fertilized to embryos was much lower than we expected. Well, that is now diagnostic of low egg quality. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters, and hello to shorts and tees. Thank you, Quince. So even though somebody may have told you, it may have been me, you're young, you should do great with IVF, your quality should be good, that may not be the case in the lab. Sometimes the lab is telling us your infertility is because you have less egg quality than you should. That sucks because I don't have magic for egg quality. Egg quality is primarily correlated with age. We know for a fact the older you get, the higher prevalence of genetic abnormalities in your eggs. We already talked about that. But it also has some association with lifestyle that is very hard to study. But we know things like toxins, smoking cigarettes, marijuana, lots of environmental chemicals. Those things are going to impair our egg quality. Similarly, good things like vitamins and nutrients, things like vitamin D or coenzyme Q10 may help support our eggs. I like to think of it as you can't reverse bad egg quality, but you may be able to support it and we certainly want to be getting the best that we can. Egg quality can also be related to environment, endometriosis, and do some eggs perform better in different environments? Does the protocol matter? There are some patients I think that that does actually apply, and changing the protocol may help with your end game. There's also a sperm factor, so let's not ignore that. How did the sperm fertilize? Was ICSI or conventional fertilization done? ICSI is where you take a sperm and you inject it into the egg. Probably the vast majority of IVF cycles in the U.S. are done with ICSI and genetic testing. Maybe not. Maybe I'm making that up. But at least that's how my practice is. And I have seen failed fertilization with conventional insemination. That's where you take your eggs. They're in the Petri dish. You squirt sperm all over them and you put them in the incubator. And then you pull them out. And if they didn't fertilize, well, now you have failed fertilization. I can come out and say... Surprise, your unexplained infertility is no longer unexplained. However, now I know that something's going on here and fertilization is the rate limiting step. So let's do IVF again, but let's do ICSI this time. I don't love that. Tend to do ICSI for most patients. I don't like gambling, so that risk is too great for me, but we all practice a little bit differently. There's emerging evidence that in a subset of men who have recurrently poor fertilization or poor development once the male genome of the embryo kicks in, which is between days three to five. So from an egg, even though fertilization happens on day zero, that day zero to three, all the cell division is all dependent on the maternal genome comes from mom. However, once the male genome kicks in from day three to five, you sometimes can see a big drop off of that place. If you do, then we start to worry that something's wrong with the sperm. Similarly, we can talk about lifestyle factors, toxins, diet, supplements, but we also want to make sure what was the sperm count? Does the count need to be improved? How was the motility? And there's a test called a DNA sperm fragmentation. This test is looked at to see if the sperm have less integrity in the DNA, which is in the head structure of the sperm. And the thought process is that maybe sperm develop normal in the testes. So the life cycle of a sperm is about 90 days takes it about 72 days to grow inside the testes, exposed to whatever you're doing. So you're smoking tons of pot and sit in the hot tub every day. Your sperm's not going to be as normal as it could be. Then it takes it about 18 days to get from the testes through the ejaculatory duct to be ready to be present in an ejaculate. And so there's a subset of men, it's not most men, that have some damage that occur from point A to point B. I like to think of it as the road is really windy. So there's more accidents and that sperm had may get damaged along the way. And so this is an instance where there is a chance doing a sperm extraction procedure. These have fancy names like Pesa, Mesa, Tesi, but essentially a urologist goes and sticks a needle in and gets the sperm out before it starts its journey. And then you can fertilize the eggs with that sperm. And does it help overcome those factors? I've checked this test in a lot of people with less than expected outcomes. Usually it is normal, but not always. And you have to talk it through and think about it. If I have a couple who's not going to pay the very large additional fees for a male surgical procedure at the same time, is there utility in checking the test? I think that's a true and honest discussion when this comes into the conversation, but that's something to think about is the male component. Most of my WTF appointments are for no genetically normal embryos, and largely this is an expected outcome due to age. I still break down the entire cycle because I want to manipulate every single data point and try to do better in the next cycle. Sometimes we do better because there's less stress. The shots aren't scary anymore. You know what's coming. The roadmap is expected, and that can help, or that you've been doing those good behaviors for a little bit longer, so maybe that tincture of time adds up there. But often it says, hey, the math is not in our favor yet. And I have this conversation all the time. I actually have a chart that I show patients. And it is your rate of having a normal embryo based on how many blastocysts you send off to biopsy based on your age. And let's just, I'll read you an expected group from age 38 to 40. So at age 38 to 40, if you send off three or fewer embryos, you have a 60% chance of having one of them be normal. And again, not every normal embryo turns into a baby. If you send off four to six embryos, you have an 88% chance. So in 60%, that's almost flipping a coin. 88% is the vast majority. When you get to seven to 10, you have 92% should have a normal. So if you're 38, you have sent off 10 embryos and you have not found a normal embryo yet, you are now falling way outside the curve of what's expected. On the other hand, if you're 38 and you've sent off two embryos, you're sitting in a room with 40% of all women who just went through IVF. And that's a big group. So we shouldn't make these huge decisions like I should give up IVF forever. I will say, let's get through the protocol and see if we can get more. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Then we say, okay, well, Two was what I expected for you based on your other outcomes. So we achieved that goal. However, we haven't gotten into the majority category yet, really. So we need to do another cycle and try to get to that next level of success. And so that's a different way of phasing it. So even though we didn't achieve normal embryos and we would have loved to have had them, we actually had the expected outcome for our age. So we may change more. We may not. We may just need another cycle. What about embryo transfer? I like to have meetings before transfer because I want to make sure I'm not missing anything and there's different options for transfer. And when transfers don't work, let's start thinking through. Again, I don't do lots of fresh transfers. I think the data is showing us that when your hormone levels are really high with IVF fresh cycles, you see lower implantation rates. And then those embryos are not genetically normal or you don't know if they're normal or not. So you get put in this weird place. Is it the uterus? Is it the body? Is it the embryo? And I don't like that place. I would rather say, I am controlling for every factor I can control for. And this is where we are. So let's just talk about the frozen embryo transfer with normal embryos. The different types of ways we can do a transfer there's natural cycles and controlled cycles. Natural cycle, whole premise is that your body is going to grow an egg. That egg will make estrogen, normal estrogen that eggs make. That estrogen will stimulate a lining to grow. And then when it ovulates, your body will start to make progesterone, and you can time the transfer based on when implantation would normally happen, which is going to be dependent upon when your body surges or if you get triggered. These cycles can be followed by ultrasound. They can be induced with a trigger shot. You can stimulate ovulation. We call this a modified natural cycle with medications like letrozole, which is a pill, or with injectable gonadotropins like FSH. So there's different ways to get there. It usually costs more money. You have to come in for more visits. It is much less predictable. I can't tell you what day your transfer is going to be on. And some women may not get the same uterine response that they could. Others will do better from their body's own endogenous estrogen. I find that a lot of women like it because they feel normal if they're used to ovulating and they're good with that, I do find that the uncertainty of when it's happening, if your doctor can do the transfer, those things may feel really overwhelming if you're a controlling person like myself, but that's one. The other protocol option is a controlled cycle. A controlled cycle premise is that I give you estrogen. It can be pills, vaginally, shots, patches, somehow I give you estrogen And that estrogen stimulates the lining of the uterus to grow. That cycle can be timed. Usually you lead in with some type of suppression, birth control pills or Lupron or both or none. You just start it on a natural cycle. But you have to make sure the body doesn't ovulate through. Taking estrogen should prevent ovulation. Estrogen tells the brain to stop sending out FSH. That's how birth control pills work. But every woman has a different level of sensitivity. So you have to check to make sure ovulation hasn't occurred. In all of these cycles, you're usually doing lining checks to see if the lining is both thick enough, which should be an individual goal based on your IVF cycle, and pretty. Is it trilaminar? Is it organized in response to estrogen? And I stand with all fertility doctors who will probably tell you we'll take pretty, organized linings over thick ones every day of the year. Progesterone can then be given in oral, vaginal, or injectable form. In a modified or natural cycle, your body's making some progesterone, that's an advantage. So you only need progesterone supplementation, like additional. In a frozen embryo transfer that's controlled, your body's making no progesterone. So we have to come in and totally replace it. And so you will see that almost all frozen embryo transfers that are controlled will have some form of injectable progesterone. And that's our BFF, PIO, or progesterone in oil. Now, before you do your cycle, I, I'm floored at how many people just go into a cycle and don't do anything. I'm a big believer. We want to evaluate the uterine cavity that is best done with a saline infused sonogram or a surgical evaluation. HSG, the x-ray dye test is not a test that is specific enough for the uterus. And I do not trust an HSG alone. I want to either look in there at the camera or I want to look in there with my ultrasound and make sure that everything looks good. Cavity evaluation. I like to do a mock embryo transfer. That's a practice transfer. Again, I'm controlling. I don't like surprises. So if you need a special speculum or catheter or whatever, I like to know what I'm getting into. I mean, seriously, F 4 we'll make notes. You need this speculum and this catheter, and there's a bend it here and you angle it here, but not everybody does that. But so I believe uterine evaluation, practice embryo transfer, check for anything that can impact implantation. When was your last thyroid? What's your vitamin D? How do we optimize those factors? And I really want to make sure that your history does not support that you need additional testing. And I will say this is based on history. Have you had miscarriages? How long have you been trying? Have you had chemical pregnancies? Things like the recurrent pregnancy evaluation. Do you have any autoimmune diseases? Do you have clotting disorders? That factor plus consideration for an ERA test. Before I go into what the ERA is, this is one of the top questions that I'm asked. I do want to say this, what we do as far as a pre-evaluation for your cycle may depend on your goals and how many embryos you have. It's not that embryos are not valuable to us, they are, but if you made multiple genetically normal embryos and the most probable outcome is that you will get pregnant, is it worth the money, expense, invasiveness of doing some of these tests or would you rather just do a transfer and see if the most likely thing happens? If you only had one embryo, we may approach it differently. I will say this is an honest discussion that I have with patients going over the data, and everybody makes a different decision. We want to break it down and talk through it. The ERA biopsy is an endometrial receptivity analysis test. This test is done by some practices in extremely different ways, and it's one of the hardest things to understand or interpret because. It is new. It's new. Anytime technology is new, we have to think about it before we just go and apply it. In the very simplest expression, the ERA biopsy is a biopsy done right around when you would transfer an embryo. And then we are going to look to see what the expression of the estrogen and progesterone receptors are in that sample and trying to tell us if day six, the day we do most frozen embryo transfers, that perfect day of implantation, if that is the right day to do a transfer. Now, It is, in most women, the right day. So I tell everybody, hey, if we go do this, the most probable outcome is that the test is going to come back and tell us that your uterine environment is receptive. The test takes a while. You have to stimulate a cycle. So very often that's suppression, grow the lining, start the progesterone, and then you do a biopsy instead of taking an embryo out. That's an in-office procedure in most practices. It is sometimes a surgical procedure at other practices, which could include facility fees, anesthesia costs, things like that. You then have to have a period and you start the process all over again. The test is only studied in certain protocol types, but different clinics will apply it to different ones. And so that is very murky data. The number one thing is that an ERA costs money. It's not the most comfortable procedure and it takes time. At a minimum, it's taking you out of commission for at least a cycle, usually one to two months. Now, that may be worth it. It may not. So you really need to think about it. But these are the things I'm walking through in my brain based on our goals, how many embryos we have, and your clinical history. Okay, I'm going to end by saying recurrent implantation failure of genetically normal embryos is one of the hardest places for us to be. Once genetic testing of embryos came along, it completely changed this field because we really started to focus on the uterus. This part has changed our entire mindset. When I first entered this field, when transfers wouldn't work, we didn't always do genetic testing. And I would say, must have been a bad embryo. Don't worry about it. Let's just do another cycle. And a lot of those people got pregnant. That being said, now that we know things about shift in receptivity and all the adjuncts that may make a difference for certain patients, we have to start thinking about all of this and applying it to each patient. I do sometimes take patients to surgery, do kind of more rare, but extended suppression protocols and start going down that pathway of how can we get you to that successful outcome. I do want to say that adding additional genetically normal embryos is not a treatment strategy that is going to make much sense. If we start to believe that the problem with getting you to the baby is your uterus, why should we put more of those normal embryos into that uterus? We are not increasing our pregnancy rates by a significant enough number to validate putting those embryos in. If you're at a program that did not do genetic testing, that's a different conversation based on your age, and I will leave that up to you and your doctor. I'm telling you how I approach this conversation, not sitting here trying to tell you what to do. I don't think everybody needs human growth hormone or an ERA test to get success. In fact, I know that they do not. However, I do know that it's really hard to be in this situation when a cycle doesn't work. And I want to send you love and I want you to take care of yourself. I want you to consider things that can lower your own stress. And how do you live your life throughout this process? Talk about this in the contingent life episode, which was recorded years ago, thinking about not putting everything on hold while you're in this unknown state of going through fertility treatments and how do you still take care of yourself and be true to yourself yet do everything that's best for the cycle. I am telling you that it's okay to ask for help, to go to therapy. In fact, I encourage it to spend time taking care of you and not taking care of everybody else. It's okay to cry about it, to not want to talk to certain friends who are having fertility success, but to find a group of those who can support you no matter what. You also need a doctor who can answer your questions. If the things I talked about here have never even entered a conversation and you're having repeated failures, you might need to consider a second opinion or talking to another doctor. And we see that all the time in the field. Personal relationship, fertility is hard. We want, we all want you to achieve that goal. But what it's going to take for each person is going to be different. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at Natalie Crawford, MD, or go check out the YouTube channel, Natalie Crawford, MD. You can just search that and you can find me. Appreciate you guys so much. I am going to do another IVF, FET, Frequently Asked Questions soon. I will be taking those questions from the YouTube video that was released this last week, five things you must know before going through IVF. So if you have a specific question, you can go over to the YouTube channel, put it in the comments of that video, and that's where we'll pull for that episode. Thanks so much.